ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. Where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play for the fourth time. And as ever, I'm here with Chad. How are you doing, Chad? Doing great. Uh, late Saturday night and early Sunday morning, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, d- due to some uh, scheduling uh, difficulties here, it's actually 6 a.m. here in the uh, here in the UK. And... Um, I can't quite believe that uh, I'm up at this hour to talk about Starcade '84. <laughs> <laughs> and and you've been a Hooters, Chad, right? To to watch uh, UFC. Yeah, I went to uh, Hooters, got some wings, watched some fights that were uh, pretty subpar, and then came home before the main event. Um, so I just looked it up, and doesn't look like I missed too much. So whatever. So was was uh, Dangerous Dan Seven on the car this evening? No, no Dangerous Dan or Tank Abbott, unfortunately. We're going to pick up where we left off um, uh, to look at Starcade 84 tonight. Quite quite a bit of a fast forward from where we were last time. Uh, a whole year since uh, Starcade 83. And we did a show on uh, Final Conflict as well. So this is even for, for Final Conflict was before Stargate 83. So we're we're jumping ahead quite a bit here. Um, but this is actually the next big show, really. Stargate 84 is the million the million dollar challenge, and everything about it um, smacks of being a sequel. We've got the same uh, the same hosts, Bob Coddle and Gordon Soley, the same music, um, and the same sort of production values. Any any thoughts before we go into this, uh, Chad? Uh, well, they added lasers. That was the one big addition. I don't know who uh, at Crockett Productions got a, a crash course on lasers, but there was quite a few moments in this show where uh, they were pretty prominent, including right at the very beginning. Yeah, they, they went in for these uh, kind of sound and light shows where they play the they play the music and everything will go dark in the arena and then this kind of we'd be treated to this very 80s laser show so um yeah well, i guess i guess too one thing that i sort of noticed and i was kind of taken aback by was you know this was right around the time where the wwf was sort of entering the rock and wrestling era and with this show that I may have seen parts of before, but I don't think I've seen the whole show before. Uh, I guess I just either didn't notice it or didn't see the parts of it. But, you know, I sort of think of the NWA as kind of like an old school promotion uh, in comparison to the WWF. But here you had lasers, a lot of uh, modern music. So, I mean, they were almost as much rock and wrestling as you know, as for instance, WrestleMania one, which was four months after this. You, do you know what was interesting to me that Crockett actually would shell out for actual music by artists. You know, uh, yeah, he he'd he'd actually pay for the songs, and Vince was always too tight to pay for songs. He'd, he'd get them written in house. So 
that was interesting because we got a lot well as we go through this guide you'll see a lot of uh, well-known hits as it were from the day maybe he paid for the songs i don't know we could have had a uh, paul Heyman ecw situation going on yeah maybe maybe in 1984 they didn't know about things like that yeah but anyway so th- so the big storyline here is that um not only are flair and dusty uh fighting over the nwa world title um but they're also there's a one million one million dollar prize at stake here as well do you do you know any of the backstory of this about how this uh million dollars came about no i don't uh do you parf uh no <laughs> the, oh, okay <laughs> so, <laughs> i mean yeah. I, I i would assume that it's not like this was a first-time matchup between Dusty and Flair, uh, especially around this uh, territory and around this area geographically. I'm sure they have wrestled numerous times at this point. I mean, Flair obviously won the championship for the first time from Dusty and yeah. Kansas City. Um, so maybe this was just like an added something to sort of add some oomph to that match yeah, to, uh, that was a little familiar. Uh, so they put in the million-dollar challenge along with uh, Smoke and Joe. So do, do, do you think that the winner of this is actually going to get a million dollars, or do you think this was a work? <laughs> <laughs> have, you, uh, have you ever heard the story about uh, Kamala and his wife uh, uh, in regards to that? Uh, no. Apparently he was in some battle royal, and I, it may have been Memphis or some territory like that. But the the uh, battle royal had a a prize of uh, it was pretty small, maybe fifteen thousand dollars, which I mean, you know, back in that time was a decent amount of change, but not a million dollars. Anyway, Kamala won, and then when he got home, his wife was like demanding to know where the money was. <laughs> she didn't realize that. Uh, it was just something to sell the show on, and he didn't actually win $15,000 for winning the Battle Royal. You know, this is a little bit uh, off topic here, but uh, I listened to a shoot with Kamala, and he was going on about that he never really got a big payday, like never got a big payoff. I don't know how much uh, of that is true, but uh, like he was saying the most he ever got paid for a show was like a grand or something. It was ridiculous. It was even the like the Hogan big paydays weren't big for him for some reason. Maybe mm. maybe nobody was willing to pay Kamala big money. I don't know. Mm. But uh, who knows? Who, who knows uh, how much how much how much to believe in any shoot interview? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some some seem pretty genuine, uh, but yeah, I mean we are talking about wrestling, so I would take pretty much everything with a grain of salt. <clears throat> so. So the first match on this show, Denny Brown versus Mike Davis. And God, when this started, I was pumped. <laughs> We've got a real big name value here. Um, so, so Mike Davis is the cruiserweight champion. Um, and he was actually working on world class at this point in Texas. And I, I believe that Denny Brown was also in Texas at this time. So this is basically a world class match put on the Starcade card. And our referee is Earl Hebner. With, yeah, with yeah, I, I, I knew I knew that before that he started in the NWA, but I had forgotten it. So when uh, 
when Dr. Tom announced <laughs> that, I was sort of, I sort of did a double take, and I was like, "Oh, really?" Yeah, and he, he gets lost in heel heat there yeah. as well. He gets booed. <laughs> the crowd was really high. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't for these two, you know, white meat, you know, pretty basic wrestlers. I was really surprised throughout the whole night. The crowd was. So, so One what, of the so, best parts of this show, actually. From what I could understand, um, Brown and Davis were both babyfaces here. So this is a babyface versus babyface match for the cruise, cruiserweight title. I actually thought it was a pretty pretty decent opener, as good as you can hope for from these two. Yeah, I mean, everything I've seen of Mike Davis, uh, as far as tape, has been pretty similar to this, where it's usually either the opening match or one of the opening uh, few matches. And uh, most of the matches are under 10 minutes, kind of energetic, you know, pretty basic, but everything's executed well. So I, I thought this, you know, followed that script pretty well where, I mean, there wasn't a ton of expert holds or high advanced moves being performed, but everything was done well, uh, kind of a sportsmanship type match. Um, yeah. Um the finish was confusing here. Um, oh, yeah. This, the finish was the worst part of the match by far. And our friend Gordon Soley seems to call it wrong. <laughs> yeah. And Davis, the champion, has got a lot of problems right here. The reversal by Davis, however. Kelly the back to play. Beautifully executed high bridge. And he pinned him out of that. That was a beautiful wrestling move right there by Mike Davis, Gordon. No question about it. The mark of a champion. And your winner and still champion, Mike Davis. Still the world's junior heavyweight champion. Got the belt there, well, Gordon. Some confusion there. Some confusion there. Uh, the, the announcer uh, thought that it was Denny Brown who was pin, uh, had, had pinned Mike yeah. Davis. It was not. It was Mike Davis pinning uh, Denny Brown. Essentially, I guess Davis. Or no, is it? Okay, now I'm getting confused. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Davis gives Brown the belly-to-back suplex, and he has him in the pinning position, but it's the same. I mean, it's the finish that's sort of been repeated where one person gives the other a suplex, and then he's down for the pinfall, but the person that actually had the move performed on him raises his shoulder right before the three. Uh, so the person that actually performed the move, which in this case was Davis, is the one counted out. Yeah. Uh, so so Brown won the title, which we eventually realized. But uh, first, Davis was announced as the winner by Tom Miller. Then Gordon says we have a new champion, but acts like Davis won, which he was the champion going in. So it yeah, was yeah, it yeah. was totally chaos, and you as the viewer had really no idea what happened until. About two minutes later, they finally said, no, Brown won and showed the replay. 
this is what I was saying before. It, it seems like they 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 worked it so that none of the announcers or the ring announcer or anybody knew what the finish was going to be. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think either Gordon or Caudle had any idea what. Uh, this finish, and as we'll see in a couple more matches, there was some confusion. So I, I don't think they were really in on any of the finishes except maybe the main event because of the way they conveyed that story, which I thought seemed sort of an odd choice. And especially in this match, really hindered some stuff because again, it was really, really confusing. Yeah, and that, so yeah, actually, Cody did get it right. He called Brown. But then acted like Davis won, but actually Brown did win, and it was the it was a new, very confusing start to the show. Um, yes. Didn't I? Did anybody care about the cruiserweight title in uh, in nineteen eighty four? I wonder. I, yeah, I think this. I mean, I know Mike Davis most of the time was just sort of somebody to go out there, get the crowd kind of clapping their hands, sort of as a you know kind of to warm the crowd up. And then he'd go out and do his thing and then leave. So, so just as last year, we've got um, Tony Schiavone in the locker room. Uh, and he, he actually looked younger, yeah. which I didn't think was possible. <laughs> he, he, was, he looked even younger this year. And, uh, yeah, he, he looked like he went from about age 18 to about 17. Did he still have the mustache? I can't remember now. No. No, I think yeah. that was it. I think the, the mustache was off. So uh, that, that probably is what attributed to him looking so much younger. Yeah. And, and our second matchup now we have, uh, and I, we've got Mr. Ito, and I've written in my notes who, and then I've got, <laughs> this is uh, Brian Adidas, and I've also written who. Although although apparently this Brian Adidas was pretty popular. He was very over with this particular crowd. And uh, yeah, um, well, in... I've seen Adidas in some world class stuff, and I don't—I mean, I don't know. He kind of always sort of reminded me of, in some ways, a primetime Brian Lee and yeah. Smoky Mountain sort of that mold, where he—he he really got a real good push, but he wasn't very good at all. He could be carried to something serviceable. I know in the world class set yeah. that a. Death Valley Driver did. He's in a few matches. Um, I've seen most of those, and they they're they're good matches. But he really has to have somebody to sort of hold his hand for him to do anything extraordinary. And uh, this certainly was not the case in this match. So yeah, I mean, my world class is really a, a promotion I've seen very little of. For some reason, it doesn't interest me like like a lot of the other ones do. There's, there's something about world class that just kind of like isn't my scene. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, the the Freebird, I've seen a pretty fair amount of world class. The Freebird Von Eric feud is, is, is really, really good, and we can kind of get into this if we decide to do sort of a state of the territory show. But uh, the Freebird Von Eric feud, you know, obviously sort of is the cornerstone of the promotion for a long time, and the, all those matches are at least good, but one thing you found with that is there was a lot of repetition. So there was, you know, a year where you see essentially the same six guys just in, you know, different spots and pairings wrestle each other. And while it's good, it does get a sort of repetitive feel. 
And then I'm not as high as on, on the uh, dynamic duo stuff as I know a lot of people are. Yeah, well, and, and it's kind of like, I I guess the Von Erichs hold no real kind of interest for me. Like, I'm not kind of, you know, I, I, I've seen a few of those big stadium shows, and it's just like, I, I don't know, I, I guess it just seems like one of those things there where you had to be there to really get it, if that makes any sense. Like, I, I can't, you know, I can't really relate to the Von Erichs as a bunch of baby faces that I'd pop for in any way. Like as a you know, as a guy sitting in 2012 in the UK, like I, I don't know how I'm meant to be interested in that, if that makes any sense. But uh, yeah, I think I think definitely sort of the Southern uh, United States tradition of kind of a standing tall cowboy type uh, character really sort of resonates more than obviously it would for you, someone in the UK. Yeah, but I guess I should watch some more. Free birds, and I, I guess a lot of Michael Hayes' best stuff is uh, is in Texas, right? So, I sh- yeah, yeah. I mean, Hayes is in some incredible matches. His uh, his cage match with Kerry in 1983. It's eight minutes, maybe. It's it's really quick. It's a really quick match. Maybe my favorite under ten minute match of all time. I mean, just great hatred. Uh, really good action. It, it's it's a great match. Yeah, I, I, I will get into it at some point, but it, as of right now, on the list of stuff to do, it's it's kind of it's like down there. Yeah, it's down there. Yeah, yeah. Um, just above like Portland and and all those, you know. Oh, don't sell Portland short. <laughs> You'll like Portland when you get around to watching that too. <laughs> well, it's above Puerto Rico. And, uh, okay, there you go. There we go. I got no beef for that. <laughs> All right, I, I have to watch it. I'm pretty pumped, actually. I I have my week off now, and the AWA set has finally arrived. So I will. I'll be watching that um, as the week uh, as the week progresses. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not just a quick aside on the AWA set. I'm not sure how. It's kind of one of them things where I'm not sure how much the promotion will necessarily fit my taste in wrestling because I always sort of have a vision of AWA kind of being a dull, uh, you know, black and white promotion yeah. uh, where things were pretty basic storyline-wise. But uh, it, it is something that I've seen very, very little of uh, as far as only seeing a couple of the Rockers versus... Rose and Summers matches and the Bachwinkle Henning Ironman match, which I thought was, or not Ironman match, but the hour draw match, which was really great. Uh, so that's the main thing I'm interested in. And that said is of the 150 matches that were selected, I would guess at most I've seen eight of them. So the 142 matches are new to me. Yeah, the, the, the thing that I'm looking forward to there is just the variety of characters, guys at weird points in their career, like guys just starting out, guys who are in their late 50s, like yeah. just a weird mix of people at weird, at different stages. Right. That's what I'm looking forward to there. But maybe sure. maybe further down the line, we can we can do something on AWA. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So, um, Soli, uh, this Mr. Ito, by the way. Um, I was trying to find some more information on him, and it's it's actually not that, that there's a guy called um, Umanazuki Ueda, um, a Japanese wrestler, um, who did a, a lot of stuff in uh, all Japan, and he worked mid south and New Japan, 
and you know he's done quite a lot of stuff um you know he's a big time like nwa wrestler in the 70s this man is not this particular mr ito because he he went by mr ito um yeah so it's not him it's in fact a guy called um masao ito who was pretty much a jobber from what i could tell like he he mainly did kind of he worked mid south um he did some and he did some stuff for Crockett, but mainly he was a he was a enhancement guy so yeah. not a lot to say about mr ito here and this is essentially what this match is um kind of a squash to put brian adidas over oh yeah i mean in the other in the final conflict show we sh- uh, talked about how some of the matches when not look that out of place on a superstars taping or something like that. This match, even more so than anything we've seen so far in the shows we reviewed, this was four minutes. Ito got in the most basic of offense in, and then Adidas gave an airplane spin and pinned him, I mean, really, really fast, and that was it. We didn't get a chance to see much from adidas we got a chance to see nothing from mr ito so this was essentially a squash in every sense of the word and th- th- this had all the makings of a of a push here because Soli and coddle like really talk up adidas as being a, a rising star during this match but it doesn't look like he did much with crockett yeah i mean he doesn't do much with crockett it was, that was sort of weird as they Really talked him up as an up and rising prospect, uh, similar to how Rotundo was talked up yeah. in the Final Conflict show. But yeah, not much happened to follow up this, unless there's something that I'm unaware of. He kind of me. He kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Rick Martel or uh, Tito Santana during their Strike Force days here. Like he, that's that kind of type of babyface, you know. Like he, he seemed like he might go on to be somebody like that, but. Obviously, that didn't happen. And so he calls this a catch-as-catch-can match. Mr. Ito with the uh, tremendous combination of the Oriental style of wrestling uh, plus his uh, adaptation to the American catch-as-catch-can style. Going up against Brian Adidas, who certainly, I think, represents uh, U.S. catch-as-catch-can wrestling at its very finest. Can you explain to me what that means? What is that? Well... It, it wasn't what we got here, what I take it to mean. I, I mean, to me, catch as catch can, to be honest, I think of the first thing that pops into my mind is really some British wrestling, kind of regal, Finley. Yeah, well, I think of Billy Robinson when somebody... Yeah, Billy that. Robinson, that's a perfect yeah. example. Just sort of trading holds, cranking out submissions with neat counters, not basic moves and then an airplane span so i don't i don't know if solely was just throwing something out there just to say something i would assume so because this was certainly not catch as catch can <laughs> yeah that occurred to me as well um yeah that was, that's a head scratcher so then if i'm not mistaken we go straight from this into mike graham versus jesse Barr. yes for the, and these are two guys from florida fighting over the florida state title now, now, Jesse Barr may be better known to some fans as Jimmy Jack Funk in the WWF, and Mike Graham is the slightly annoying guy from the Legends of uh, 
the Legend of Wrestling Roundtables. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I've seen a number of shoots with Mike Graham, and he, he is one guy who you can't really trust uh, a lot of the stuff that he says. But to be fair to him, he looked really good in this match to me. Quite smooth. And this was uh, clearly, I mean, they were fighting over a regional title here, the Florida title. And it was another example of them putting uh, two wrestlers from a different promotion on this supercard. I'm kind of thinking about like how the booking works here. I mean, did Florida definitely get this show? Did they have? Because it would would have still been closed circuit at that point, right? Yes, I would. I would assume there was definitely some closed circuit locations in Florida at some of the hot spots, uh, big towns down there. But presumably, the local crowd wouldn't have known uh, these two guys if they were mainly Florida guys. Like they wouldn't really have a reason to care about this. Right. I mean, this definitely. I'm. I'm sure. I would be almost positive that Mike Graham, for instance, had done a tour of the Carolinas at some point before this. Right. right. Uh, and I would assume Jesse Barr also. But yeah, it definitely is not a match they're seeing, you know, every month. Uh, so, but I mean, they still, the crowd was hot. So maybe they were aware of more. I mean, maybe the Florida TV was somehow uh, syndicated up there. Who knows? But um, th- th- this was a pretty, like, th- they worked this as a kind of technical style match. You know, it's a lot of mat work. I guess this is closer to your catch-as-catch-can. Yes, yes. This would have been a better uh, place to put throw out that phrase and than in the last match. I don't know if it's because these two guys are Florida guys, but Soli definitely seemed more switched on here. This seemed to be, like, he seemed more in his element calling this match. <laughs> Seems to really take the bar. He he really put over bar uh, very big. Um, as much as Adidas, you know, was being talked up, I thought Jesse Barr was being talked up equally. Yeah, and I, I actually thought he looked pretty good here. I thought both of these yes. guys looked good. Yeah, that, the Graham working on the leg was uh, real, real. I mean, it, it was it was basic, but it was, it was very interesting, and he was really cranking the leg and Barr got a hammer lock on him. And that again, as far as hammer locks goes, was really tightly applied. And they basically sort of really stayed focused on that, which was nice to see where they kept going back to that and revisiting it. And we ended up with a figure four and, uh, and then Barr eventually got the pin with his feet on the ropes, which was a good, I mean, a decent finish at this point in the card in order for Barr to go over, but Graham to still look pretty strong. It should explain here that Graham is the face here. Barr, yes. Barr is yes. the heel, Graham the face. And uh, I actually thought that uh, we seen an Indian death lock from Graham at one, at one point. I mean, he really looks like somebody, he surprised me in this match. He really looks like he knows what he's doing. Like, um, he, he controlled this match. You could tell that it was Graham who was working this, you know, he was the one um, calling calling the moves in this. Yeah, well, I wonder if more uh, footage of Florida existed if Graham would sort of become kind of like a Greg Gagne figure where, you know, he's the son of a promotion, he's a pretty undersized person compared to a lot of other wrestlers at this time, 
doesn't have the best look in the world. Uh, Ganya's worse than Graham, but Graham yeah. certainly doesn't have a great look. Uh, but, you know, really could work pretty well. And uh, was even though their push might have, you know, been better than their actual ability at times, they could go more than they've been given credit for yeah, over well, the years. He, he's definitely not Eric Watts, I'll tell you that. No, absolutely not. Of the footage I've seen, which is, again, pretty, pretty limited, but all the matches I've seen with Graham in has been solid, and he at least looks competent in the ring. Sully mentions that he's a state powerlifting champion. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and also, which has really surprised me. Um, and also, like, because uh, he doesn't look like a powerlifting champion. Uh, uh, that's one where I might have to check the record book on that again. <laughs> and uh, he also has a he also called this match uh, "Human Chess," which uh, yeah. which I thought was a great little uh, soliism there. Um, yeah. But yeah, th- this was uh, probably one of the better matches that we've seen so far for me. Like, yeah, best match up to this point, I would say. I, I thought it was better in the opener. Given a little more time, worked a little better. Like again, like I said, the work on the leg and the arm was well done. So I mean, it was it was a it was not great or anything, but it was a decent match that had its place on I, this card. I think it dragged a little bit in the middle, but then that's that's again like any match that um seems to have guys lying about on the mat, unless it's unless it's literally worked like Robinson versus Bockwinkle, um, I start to get a little bit bored. Like um and for, for how long was this match a ten minute match something like that they, yeah they, I would say even about eight to ten minutes they, they probably spent too too long doing the you know working holds um I actually like to see you know for a ten minute match ideally the first two three minutes would be holds then they then they'd literally start doing some doing some other stuff I guess progressing through strikes and getting on to getting on to some high spots. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's not what we saw here. But still, it was good for what it was. Um, so then we have quite an unusual matchup here. The Assassin, still around, Jody Ham- Hamilton, now in his uh, early 70s. Um, <laughs> well, As a face. So, so we, yeah, bizarrely, the Assassin as a face with... The Avalanche, Buzz Tyler, and another dancing baby face. Um, seemingly endless amount of dancing baby faces here. They come out the footloose, which... <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the assassin and all the possible uh, theme songs, probably towards the bottom of that, Endless list would be footloose, and, but that is that is what was selected for him. I mean, Buzz, <laughs> bless his heart, he's not exactly somebody you'd envision coming out to that song either. But especially the assassin. I mean, footloose, come on. This is a really odd pairing here because yeah. Buzz Tyler's dancing about, doing his best kind <laughs> of, you know, dusty road roads moves, and the assassin is just standing there. Yeah, yeah, he, he he had this same, you know, real sort of, he, I mean, Jody has a real kind of sour looking face just as a natural expression, 
But it, it was extremely humorous in this setting because, yeah, Buzz was beaming around, all around, dancing as this footloose was blaring and the assassin was just sort of standing there so, uh, looking like he'd rather be anywhere else in the world. At some point, you and I need to do uh, like a top five fat dancing baby faces of this era. Um, because I, I never heard of Buzz Tyler, but uh, he, he's got to be up there because he was really giving it. He was over, I tell you that much. Yeah, and I again, I'd, I'd never heard of this guy, and I, 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 I think it was just a really hot crowd, though. I mean, this crowd. See, here's what I'm wondering: Was Buzz Tyler over, or <laughs> did crowds at this time literally like just lose their shit whenever anybody would dance? Like I don't know, like. This, I mean, in the song, too, I mean, Footloose, I would assume, was probably on the charts at this point in time. So so there are opponents here, and this had me going immediately to, to the Google, uh, <laughs> the, the Zambui Express. <laughs> yes. Um, two massive black guys, super heavyweights, basically, uh, with Mr. T haircuts. Um, and these guys were big, like close to 400 pounds, if not more. Right. Yeah. And they're with, uh, Paul Jones. Is that right? Right. They were with Paul. Um, and they announced something like, so now I was confused. This is a tag elimination match. It kind of worked with Survivor Series rules, even though it's two on two. Right. Um, so they mentioned this. But then I I didn't really understand what was going on because uh, seemingly there was no elimination. It didn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, this was our second confusing uh, type of finish. Uh, just for reference, the Zambui Express is Ray Candy, uh, who grew up in Georgia and did a lot in Georgia and Florida. Carolinas uh, died early. And then... Big Bad Leroy Brown, uh, which my personal most experience with him is in Mid-South and kind of the wanting days of Mid-South in uh, Skandar Akbar's. He was in their stable. Uh, he was pretty brutal in that period of time. But, yeah, this this was worked elimination style. Uh, very, very quick match again. This May have went five minutes from bell to bell. And, and the ending, I mean, I, th I thought the Zambui Express in the match had some good punches. Uh, Ray Candy, which I can't remember if he's, I think he's uh, Akeem instead of Muhammad. I, I don't really understand the Zambui Express gimmick. Did you have any idea sort of what their... Um, you know what they were trying to accomplish, where they were from. Yeah, it was it was it's almost like they were have it that it was almost like their gimmick was um they were part of that kind of uh what do they call it the one 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 nation Africans is it where you know like Mar uh, Marcus Garvey and all that sort of stuff where that it, they're kind of like uh it's like a Muslim brotherhood because like these are clearly Muslim names like right yeah um. Yeah. So maybe that was the thinking, but it wasn't really brought across because they've got these Mr. T haircuts. It's not like they're working wild. So this isn't. It, it's not like they're working uh, Kamala style gimmicks here. They're not like wild men. 
did they seem more yeah. like kind of, I guess, more like one man gang, but without any punk. Any, it was very difficult to see what the gimmick was here. They were just too. Yeah, it's almost like they dressed up in these costumes for Halloween or something, and and just became this Zambui Express. I mean, they had a you know pretty long-standing partnership. So I may sound ignorant, but as far as just seeing this match, and I haven't seen them tag much at all. Uh, it was very difficult to kind of get a sense of what they were about, why they were the Zambui Express. and yeah. Or why Paul Jones was with them. Right, yeah, I didn't get that connection either. Um, uh, but, so, but, yeah, I, I was going to mention here, Gordon Soli just gives up any pretense of being able to tell between the two of them, and he just calls both men the Zambui Express, which, uh, yeah, which yeah, uh, I yeah. find pretty amusing. And it got me confused, too, because, the, as we said in the Starcade 83 show, the light was pretty uh, dark as far as the in-ring action. So at certain points, it was kind of tough to tell what exactly was going on, um, especially when they would switch places and all four guys were in the ring. So... This was a pretty crappy match. Uh, yeah, this this was bad. This uh, w- yeah, if this very was... short. I didn't understand what happened here. Karim uh, Kareem was pinned. Um, yeah, I guess. Um, well, the action broke down. All four were brawling, and then Assassin and uh, I guess was that Akeem? Is that? One of anyway, they, they one of the Zambui Express went to the outside and got counted out essentially. But both of so both of them were eliminated. But we never got a bell, we never got an announcement, and the announcers were pretty much clueless. So while that is going on, uh, what I'm sorry, that was Tyler. That was actually on the outside. Assassin and Muhammad are in the ring, and they both run into each other. Muhammad falls to the mat, and Assassin's sort of out on the ropes. And Tyler, who just got counted out, along with the other member of the Zambui Express, pushes the Assassin on top of Muhammad, and they get the pinfall and the win. But this was almost as confusing as the first match, where... You know, the announcers sort of called it like that was the first pinfall and the match was going to continue. And then next thing you see, everybody's hightailing it back to the dressing room and we just go on to the next thing. If they weren't going to make a big deal of it being an elimination, like if there wasn't going to be a period where it was two on one, I don't understand the point of making this elimination style. Like, yeah, it's it, it, such a booking. pointless stipulation. Terrible booking. Need Pat Patterson to do finishes here, uh, or somebody who can book finishes. It's just too much confusion. I mean, I can't imagine if I was a big wrestling fan getting somebody to come watch this show and having to sit there and explain, you know, a ton of what has been going on because this was twice now in four matches where. Even the announcers did not have a clear, you know, story on what happened at the finish of the match. And, you know, 
it's also like confusion is just not something you want to go for at the end of any match. It's just like no. the weakest possible finish, I think. Yeah, it's confusion. Okay, so we're back to the locker room. Uh, Tony Schiavone is there with uh, Dusty Rhodes, and I just got a note here that Dusty Rhodes is in some sort of um, uh, tracksuit or something, and he looks absolutely massive. He, huge. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> he looked huge in this thing. He had. I don't know what he was wearing. He had like a jacket or something. It looked like sort of over him. Yeah. Uh, that had dusty on the side of it. But just just the way he was sitting, he was sort of slouching, like laying back in the chair. And it looked awful. I mean, when we say huge, this is like Yokozuna just before he died big. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, he looked at least as big as Earthquake in his day here. It, he, looked, he looked bad. I mean, he gave a... Decent promo, I thought, but somebody should, I, I don't know, somebody should have told him to stand up. I'm not one of these <laughs> people that, you know, I like Dusty, and I'm not a, I'm obviously not like Vince, and that's, everybody has to be ripped to shreds and a great physique, but if you're challenging for the world title, I think you should at least look in decent shape or physical threat in some regards, and I mean, to be honest, this looked like me sitting in a chair, sort of um, backstage or I, something. It, it did not look good. I think that this is this may be Dusty in this promo may be the worst anybody anybody has ever looked on a wrestling show. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, he, he looked really bad. I mean, he looked just huge. Anyway, Michael Jackson's beat it plays, <laughs> and uh, I was really surprised. And then we get the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez. Yeah. Um, so he, I guess, beats it was his music at this point. It's, it's kind of not clear, is it? They or are they just playing the music to pop the crowd? I don't know. Yeah, that, that's I, and they don't really fit. That's what I mean. The music doesn't necessarily fit the personas, so I'm not sure. So we also get uh, so Manny Fernandez is up against Black Bart, uh, also known as Rick Harris from the Final Conflict show. That now he's got a proper gimmick and he's got a manager too, J.J. Uh, Dillon. Um, and this is <laughs> this is for something called the Brass the Brass Knuckles Championship, huh. and it's um, it's an anything goes match. So I was confused here because this seemed to be like some sort of hardcore title. The Brass Knuckles weren't really part of this match. Like, why weren't they both wearing brass knuckles? It was very confused. Like I was very confused as to what this title is all about. Yeah, most of the brass knuckle title matches I've seen, I get. I, I don't know if that was just a term that meant they were, you know, it was essentially like you said, a hardcore title where they could really brawl and punch, and maybe instead of the literal meaning of having a pair of brass knuckles. But uh, again, we really see. This is very early in the show, and we've already had a Florida heavyweight championship match, a light heavyweight championship match, now this brass knuckles match. So they sort of tried to beef up this show with some a lot of titles, but yeah, and this particular the action doesn't really speak for this particular. You're not getting championship quality matches. This, this particular title is a Florida title. We should mention it's like from the Florida territory. Um, this brass knuckles championship, and uh, pulling out—it's actually had a really 
really long history going back to like 1960. <laughs> yeah, so I don't I don't know if that predates the actual usage of brass knuckles. I don't I don't know. Some some pretty interesting people held this title. Uh, Mike DiBiase held it. Boris Melenko. Jose Lothario. Okay. Missouri Mora. Thunderbolt Patterson had it at one point. <laughs> so, uh, wow. What a title. Um, so, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was ever considered prestigious or anything. Probably not. But it definitely it'd been around. Manny Fernandez seems to be bleeding almost immediately, as we've come to expect from him. Yeah. I don't even know what leads to him bleeding here. I, he may even come to the match bleeding. I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> he gets really bloody. Uh, really quick, and our uh, our overhead camera angle returned from the previous year, so that was nice. I know uh, Black Bart at one point in this match gives an elbow drop from that overhead camera, and that that looked really good because I thought the punching. I mean, this, this is essentially a, a a punch and kick match. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that that's. A, essentially all the holds you saw here. So it's kind of tough to describe the action because, I mean, it's eight to ten minutes of punching and kicking. Uh, and and I didn't think the shots looked particularly well there, in most instances. There's one really good diving fist drop from Manny Fernandez. Yes. That's the only real note I've got. Um, and it looked quite good because not many people do. Um, I know Ted, uh, Ted DiBiase does a, does a kind of his own like signature fist drop um but that's a like a kind of standard fist drop and a, a really good one that we see from Manny Fernandez um but yeah that's the only real high spot in this entire match i just got written there it it's just too short what it is needed more time to get going again kind of another another nothing match yeah i mean just just a basic little brawl uh, didn't seem very intense didn't intensity much going on here a bart i mean he he would have one good punch but then he would throw about four or five just terrible ones which was really weird i thought i mean he would he would mix in one good punch where he'd really connect with fernandez but then the next couple would just look really bad and the ending is bart goes for the bull rope uh, but fernandez is able to uh, get to him while he's going for the bull rope and roll him up to get the pinfall. Uh, so not not much going on here at all. Just a punch and kick, basic brawl. Not very good. Yeah, and uh, um, on the on the old records here, I'm not sure if this was like recognized this this title. I I don't. I think it was maybe discontinued very shortly after this match because I I don't, I don't think Manny Fernandez went on some kind of run as the Brass Knuckles champion here uh, after the match because I think he was like a tag champ, mm-hmm. if not at this time, shortly after this, went on quite a long run as a as a tag champion, or, or was it even quite a bit later? I know Rick. Rick well, Lu- we, yeah, he had that run with Rude, which was uh, eighty six. I know his matches with the Rock and Roll Express were, I want to say eighty six, maybe early eighty seven. Uh, they they were very good. Yeah, I, I I guess Manny Fernandez was like an early hardcore uh, pioneer in some ways. Yeah, in some ways, in but some ways. yeah, this this was pretty bad. Um, 
So uh, we go to Soli and Coddle, and I've just got a note here saying that they look so fed up. They couldn't look more disinterested in this show. <laughs> they just look like they want to go home or something. Um, and then, and then you get the announcement of a seven-minute intermission. <laughs> yeah, seven-minute intermission going into this, um, and that means we get a promo um, from Ricky Steamboat, who gives the most white meat, most wholesome, most babyface promo imaginable, um, and he calls uh, uh, Tully Blanchard a yellow-bellied coward. Um, and I was really surprised to see this uh, match on the card. I never knew that Tully and Steamboat had had a match, and it's kind of forgotten, I think, that this that this whole thing happened. Nobody ever really talks about um, this match or this angle. Um, so did, I, I think the story is that they've they've both put up ten thousand dollars of their own money. So Tully is the TV champion, and they both put up ten grand. And the title can change hands on a DQ. And a Steamboat versus uh, Tully. So, yeah, not a lot to say about the Steamboat promo. It's just, uh, again, it was just very typical of a babyface promo at this time. Not very shouty, quite quiet, that kind of... Any any thoughts about the Steamboat promo here? I I thought it was a pretty good promo uh, as far as him talking about overcoming the odds and... He may be injured, but he doesn't want totally to know how injured he is and where exactly he's injured. Uh, we did get a little production snafu at the beginning where they threw it to Tony and the light went out. And Tony just froze up. It was a, a deer in the headlights look he gives. And they quickly go back to Soli and then they throw it back out and it's working now. Uh, but I, I thought overall this interview was really good, and I thought it was interesting throughout this intermission that they es- essentially only talked about the Steamboat and Tully match, where in the Starcade 83 card we had endless, endless promos only on the Flair race match, and that was clearly presented as the main event. Here, Steamboat and Tully got as much hype during the show as Flair and Dusty. Yeah, it definitely had a spotlight on it, this uh, this match. And I got, I got the impression that maybe um, maybe some like maybe this match was a draw in its own right. Some of the buys were coming from this match as yeah. much as much as the other one. I thought it was a little bit weird that they put um, they put another match with a money kind of stipulation. Yeah, it's especially, I mean, you have one match with $10,000, which it was of their own money, but then to go immediately from that to a $1 million prize uh, did seem bizarre. So, um, we go back to Coddle and Soli, uh, and they analyze um, Tully as a psychological competitor. And I guess this gives buys Tony some time to run to the heel locker room where he's with uh, Tully Blanchard and J.J. Dillon. So I'm not sure where Baby Doll is at this time um, because, I mean, Baby Doll was around, right, at this point? I don't know if she was quite around yet, and Tully should have been really, really fresh because this 
would have been coming off his uh, world-class run. So I don't know if they'd put it together yet, them two. So, yeah, he's with J.J. Dillon here. and I didn't, Yeah. I didn't actually know that he had a run with Dillon before the Horseman. Right. This really sort of seemed like, in a lot of ways, kind of a Horseman or, origin story uh, with Dillon here. And Dillon cut a good, pretentious promo and totally uh, gave another good promo talking about how he didn't feel sorry for Steamboat. And it, I, I thought it was really great here how um, Dil- Dylan was uh, still sore about the Black Bart loss. This is not <laughs> this is not a good night for me. Um, yeah. And uh, you know I've I've always I've never really understood why JJ Dylan gets talked about as a you know even being in the conversation of great managers. I always just thought well because he was the Horseman's manager he just gets thrown into that uh, conversation. But he I he really impressed me on the show. Maybe, maybe more on that later. But. He was really, uh, I, I enjoyed him in this promo. Agreed. I had the same thought. I mean, as as far as managers that we've seen in the NWA so far, uh, what he did on this show, I would put ahead of Paul Jones, any managing he's done, and Gary Hart. So he's been the best manager we've seen as far as in the NWA on the three shows we've watched, in my opinion. Definitely. And, uh, and Tully during this, uh, he accuses a steam steamer of being a crybaby, <laughs> making excuses about being injured. <laughs> and then, interestingly, he wants a shot at the world title, and even uh, makes overtures uh, about facing Ric Flair one day, which right. was, which was interesting. Um, and there were there were, even during the Horseman days, there was always that slight tension between Flair and Tully, as like who's the number one top dog type thing in that group. Tully's like the kind of, uh, I guess if Flair is the alpha male, Tully is the beta male, kind of like, you know, he really wants to be where Flair is. Right. I think Tully's very good at portraying that, you know, he thinks he's always the best person in a room. You know, he's the greatest person when he gets in a room. And I am a superior wrestler because of the fact that Ricky Steamboat... You've got to make excuses. You've had to make excuses over the last three or four months, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, all time limits. I carried you. I took you. And now you've got a hurt rib, a hurt back, and you want to cry. You back me into the corner. You got the, if I get disqualified, I lose the title. If I run and stall, you get the title. Ricky Steamboat, you had to put up $10,000, a contract to sign. Hurt back, broke leg, anything. And it's a sad, sad thing that a man that has reached the epitome, the apex of his career, has to make excuses before the biggest night of professional wrestling, before he gets in the ring, of why he can't win. Well, Ricky Steamboat, your fans out there, they might cheer for you anyway, broken ribs or not, you're going down, and then after that, the world's champion, whether it be Flair or Dusty Rhodes, Tully Blanchard is on a path of destiny. Sully thinks Tully is overconfident. Uh, <laughs> Coddle says um, the, that the adrenaline um, will push uh, Steamboat in this match, and uh, you know adrenaline means that he won't be feeling any pain. Um, and then they discuss an upcoming match: uh, Billy Graham versus Wahoo McDaniel for the for the U.S. title. Um, and uh, at that at that point, I was quite intrigued to see that match. <laughs> Uh, more on that later. Uh, <laughs> um, and then we get some 
the awesome Starcade theme, <laughs> which uh, brings us back. They just play it for no apparent reason. I can see more light shows. <laughs> um, and then I've got a big scribbled out note. I said, oh, this is the second half of the Zambui Express versus Assassin and Buzz Tyler. Weird that they'd taken intermission during that match. Uh, but I was completely wrong. <laughs> so it, I have I obviously hadn't understood that the Zambui Express match was over already. Because um, I thought that they were out again. Because the Assassin is out again. Paul Jones is back. And one of half of the Zambui Express is out. But this time Jimmy Valiant is here. And this is in fact a loser leaves town t- tuxedo st- street fight. Tuxedo match. So it's Paul Jones versus Jimmy Valiant. But... Paul Jones has brought one half of the Zambuya Express as his second, and Jimmy Valiant has brought the Assassin as his second. They used to do these tuxedo matches fairly regularly, right? I will admit that I had a soft spot for this whole match. Uh, first off, Boogie Woogie Man <laughs> gets an amazing reaction. I mean, the crowd is going crazy, and of all the dancing... Uh, wrestlers, uh, Dust, Dusty may—I I don't know. I think I think Boogie Woogie Man may edge him out because he's just—he's just such a interesting character. Uh, he kisses Tom Miller, which I thought was awesome, and just—just uh, just the whole spectacle. I mean, I mean, Boogie Woogie really made this match to me. I mean, he this was all Boogie Woogie, and and in a lot of the tuxedo matches you see, I think most of the time it's sort of driven by the heel, whether it's a manager or what what have you. Uh, the heel's the person that's begging off, creating the heat, and sort of driving the action. Here, it was all. To me, Boogie Woogie Man, what he was doing, his antics, uh, tying Jones to the ropes and stripping off his clothes. Uh, you know, Paul Jones eventually gets loose for and works over Jimmy for about a minute. And then <laughs> Boogie grabs a sleeper. And uh, that is when... I know I said the slaughter blade job in the final conflict match may have been the most obvious blade job I've seen in quite some time, uh, but Jones eclipsed it here because because Boogie grabs a sleeper and John Jones immediately goes right to his forehead and slashes the razor across, and then of course the announcers are confused and they make up the story that they hadn't noticed it. Yeah. Uh, until that time, even though it happened. Uh, but, you know, then at the end, J.J. Dillon comes in and hits Jimmy with, I, I don't know what, I never looked like a can of hairspray or something. And uh, that gave Jones the win. So Boogie Woogie Man, unfortunately, has to leave town. Uh, he has to go back to which, being uh, Charlie Brown. Yeah, yeah, that may make way for Charlie Brown to make a reappearance. <laughs> Very soon, uh, if I'm a betting man, I would expect to see Charlie Brown on the cards immediately following this show. But I mean, this, this was obviously a very shtick-oriented match. I, I've got written here horseship, but good horseship. Yes, I mean it, it was it was definitely 
uh, I, I think it was a perfect sort of slotted match, too, where this wasn't the blow-off yet. Uh, it was right after intermission, so immediately after intermission, you have Jimmy getting the crowd just crazy. And, I mean, just watching the past, I mean, just his name being announced at Final Conflict got a huge pop. And then at both Starcades, he has been one of the top two or three most popular wrestlers up there with Dusty, Flair, Piper, yeah. anybody else. Yeah, I mean... I mean, amazing. If WWF is your point of reference, because you know there will be people who who are very familiar with the kind of rock and wrestling era, but maybe less familiar with this sort of stuff. I'd say he is the equivalent of someone like a JYD or even a Hacksaw or Jim Duggan, where always constantly over. It's never going to be that far up the card, but he like God, the fans, the fans really go for him. Um, yeah, I mean the more the more modern example would be a Santino, and Santino had a pretty good run where you could say he was getting you know really big pops there for you know maybe a six month stretch around '08, but that's really waned in the last couple of years where he he gets an okay pop now, but certainly nothing like what Jimmy was getting here, and obviously we've had a year and a half from the shows we've watched so in a year and a half window he's been able to maintain some huge heat so are we saying that jimmy valiant is the king of the dancing baby faces of this era i I think he's holding the crown right now (laughs) Uh, because i mean just just his entrance here i I don't know why i mean i i just had a smile the whole time and like i said when he kissed dr tom and uh Tom sort of chuckles right before he makes the announcement. Uh, I thought I thought that was just great. It, I also think the visuals may be part of it. Like he's got that big beard, and I yeah, think that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Jimmy definitely looks like somebody that. Uh, I mean, he might he might honestly be asking you for money on the way out of the arena. <laughs> he kind of has that. Yeah. You know. Could also be a ZZ Top fan. Yeah, or, you know, a construction worker. It's just, just a very great look that kind of gets over. No, you don't, you do not get guys like rest, got like this in wrestling anymore. And even, uh, if you fast forwarded like two or three years from, from this point, so like in 88, 88, 89, hard to imagine Jimmy Valiant in that sort of setting as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would say, like you said, Duggan was probably the closest WWF in the '80s guy. I mean, Duggan was more of a standing tall babyface instead of you know dancing shtick, but he sort of was that kind of simpleton type, yeah, good times role babyface. Uh, and but uh, just, Jimmy was really good. I, I don't know if we want to get into this now, but one of the things that's always because, as as I explained before. I I was always a heel fan. Like even when I was a kid, I supported heels. Like you know, my favorite guy. Like I agree with everything Jesse Ventura said. I supported heels, um, and that was like <laughs> it always struck me that there's always this dynamic where the heels are actually clever guys. They're intelligent. Um, they are you know they have a plan. Usually the more scientific wrestlers are heels, and baby faces are often kind of like happy-go-lucky, they don't think a lot, you know, they don't have any tactics, like, and I guess Jimmy Valiant and Hacksaw, uh, Jim Duggan are both, you know, 
uh, two different versions of that. But I was wondering, like, is this something in the U.S. psyche where, um, you know, in the American psyche where uh, somebody who's vaguely intelligent has to be evil in some way? Or, like, what's the idea with a, with a baby face being somebody who's... Uh, Hasn't got a lot going on upstairs. What's... Well, I, don't, I don't know. I always hated Duggan as a kid just because I would think he would do some absolutely boneheaded decisions as far as he'd have the match won and then just go out and get a chair or a lot of his count-out finishes is him just beating up somebody on the outside and he can't even realize that the referee's right above him shouting, you know, counting yeah. to ten. And he can't roll back in or be bothered to roll back in. Uh, so that's why I always hated Duggan. I mean, Jimmy here, I, I, I mean, I don't think he's splitting the atom anytime soon with the way he's portrayed. But at least in this match, he did get outsmarted, you know, by somebody like J.J. Dillon. And it wasn't him doing something just completely boneheaded. Yeah, but I, I, I'm just trying to understand, like, why is it that these characters are baby faces in the first place, and anybody like kind of who who who's slightly more mac- like, I guess it's just this idea that somebody somebody who's got a plan necessarily is going to be a baddie. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think in any median, whether it's wrestling or you know comic books or movie villains, most of the time the person with the master plan is the, you know, the devious villain. Yeah. And going forward, we'll see that this, uh, it's not just Jimmy Valiant and Hacksaw Jim Duggan who are a little bit short upstairs when uh, when we're looking at baby faces. I'm thinking in particular of Sting. Um, and moving forward, we'll yeah, see. Yeah, now, now Sting, <laughs> is, he'll, he'll wear on the side of Duggan, I'm sure, where he just has, makes some boneheaded decisions way too trustworthy uh we'll cross that bridge when we get there but i'm not going to be defending sting i didn't i didn't have a problem with this because again i mean jj Dillon is essentially sort of treated as the bobby heenan of nwa so i mean him coming out and costing jimmy the match here it it at least didn't seem like it was something that jimmy did where he made just a dumb mistake interesting that uh Dillon would help out a fellow manager here Yes. Yes. In WF, it's not always clear that the managers are together, and in fact, there are many instances where they're actually at odds, where they're bidding for the same guy, or you know, they get in each other's way, or they have a slight rivalry. Um, right. Whereas, whereas here, clearly, Dylan is uh, helping out Jones. Just, I mean, just because they're both evil, I don't know. Just because they're both managers, um, we, we should have mentioned as well that. Paul Jones has a long-running feud with the assassin here, which is why the assassin is is out. Um, if you remember, Hercules Hernandez was assassin number two. Um, I think Paul Jones uh, kind of stole assassin number two after, he, like, I think they lost uh, uh, some sort of like assassin two had to unmask after a certain match, and Paul Jones was involved in this. So that's uh, that's where the assassin's involvement is. Yeah, throughout this, um, Soli and Coddle now just call um, the member of the Zambui Express there the Zambui <laughs> throughout. So they, they've given up even trying uh, to figure out who this guy is. Shivani's with Ric Flair. Um, and I've got a big note here um, saying that Flair 
um, is still in his Minnesota flair mode here. Um, he's definitely not Slick Rick yet. You know, he's not wearing his shades. Uh, he's not wearing a suit. Um, he's still just in a gym jumper. And he's still kind of... Um, he's still in this kind of subdued... You know, he, it, it's almost like Flair's got two different voices. Like, it, it, the Ric Flair we know and love has got a much higher-pitched voice than this. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like where he kind of he kind of speaks with a much higher. Yeah, he he wasn't full on a heel here either, uh, which I, and kind of the tone he takes here. Uh, once again, since I've been watching the '94 yearbook, it's really fresh. But sort of the transition he makes from the uh, from the Vader feud to the Steamboat feud to then the Hogan feud in 1994. This kind of reminded me of around the April-May area where he was feuding with Steamboat, where he wasn't, you know, a full-blown heel, wasn't really a baby face, but just sort of his demeanor and his tone here reminded me a lot of that. So are we saying this is twe- tweener flair, I guess? Yeah, that's, that's sort of the kind of... Now, there's a very slight hint of uh, Slick Rick here. He says right. he calls himself the number one stud. Dusty Rhodes, you lay over there as laid back as you want to, Daddy. I know you're watching me right now. You better be half the man, as you've told these people you are, because you're jumping on the number one stud in all of professional wrestling. Which, and this is the only hint of him really talking himself up at this point. But there's no to be the man. You've got to beat the man, etc. Right, um, right. And I'm actually wondering, like, had that character not really debuted at this point like like earlier on in Flair's career had he had kind of stretches where he was that guy um, or does that really emerge during 85 Possibly. I think 85 is when he was at his his peak I mean I'm, I'm certain when he developed his nature boy persona for instance in the uh, in the Star Wars 82 cage match versus Kerry Von Eric he, he's He's pretty slick, Rick, in that yeah. match. Uh, just the way he carries himself and uh, the way he acts throughout that match. It, it wasn't as, you know, obvious as his sort of signature horseman run, but he, he'd shown glimpses of it before this. See, I'm wondering if winning, uh, and I just, spoilers, <laughs> but I'm wondering if uh, winning the uh, million dollar challenge at the end of this uh, show. Um, it was actually the catalyst, you know. It was actually the reason that he became, you know, jet flying and whatnot, because he suddenly had a pile right. of money. I wonder. That's interesting. That's possible. I haven't seen the TV uh, after this, yeah, well, but that'd be interesting if somebody knows that. You know, I I have the uh, the you know Will's Horseman set, and right. that starts kind of like um, midway through '85, and he's already kind of like. You know, with the first promo in that, he's already he's already slick Rick by that point. So yeah. clearly, something happens between uh, now and then. I, d- I don't know if it's a gradual thing or whether it, he just kind of turns up one day with a fully fledged gimmick. But um, it, it's interesting that this is December '84, and he's still quite a long way from being the Rick Flair that we that we know. Um, yeah, I just I just assumed going into this show that he was going to be, you know, sleek Rick. Yeah. Uh, going in, so I was surprised. 
So anyway, we going into the next match, and uh, now this was surprising. Dick Slater now is a babyface against Cowboy Ron Bass with J.J. Dillon. Um, and so obviously, one year ago, Dick Slater was one of the biggest heels on the roster, massively allied with uh, Harley Race, um, and on you know he he was a heel, um, but apparently Black Bart. Um, and Ron Bass uh, jumped Dick Slater at one point, um, and this this was actually part of the, uh, the steamboat and uh, Tully angle as well. Uh-huh. Um, for whatever reason, Slater and Steamboat were hanging out somewhere, and um, <laughs> Black Bart and Ron Bass jumped them both, injuring Steamboat. And um, I think Tully was part of this as well. So like Tully. Black Bar and Ron Bass, all managed by J.J. Dillon, attacked Dick Slater and Ricky Steamboat. Steamboat seemed to get the worst of it because he, he got injured, um, but this also turned Dick Slater's face. So this is them. Uh, this is a match now for the Mid-Atlantic title. Um, and and aut- automatically there's a kind of change in the way Dick Slater is presented, like solely cause him unpredictable. Coddle said he's out of control. And uh, interestingly, he compares him to Roddy Piper, which um, really surprised me that he mentioned Roddy Piper, who would have been in WF at this point. Yeah, that was kind of an odd call to him. I I mean, an appropriate comparison with the way Slater was working this match. But, yeah, that was bizarre that Cottle would mention Piper, um, considering he was deeply embedded in the competition by that point. So this was interesting to me because not only has Slater changed his personality here, he's also changed his style. Because I mean, I, I mentioned before he was basically a scientific wrestler last year. Now he's kind of much more in the Roddy Piper kind of, um, I guess, face Terry Funk mode. Yeah, there was a lot more scrappiness. Um, kind of, he kept chasing after JJ uh, in this match and. Uh, a lot of more sort of punching and grabbing and chasing after bass and uh, definitely sort of, I mean, he did remind me a lot of Piper here and he, he worked this match well as a baby face. I mean, oh, Slater yeah. is not somebody that I could ever recall, you know, being much of a baby face, but he got a great reaction, worked the match well. Uh, in the middle of this match, the referee did an idiotic, uh, thing where he catches the boot of Slater and allows Bass to take over, which I thought was just awful. Like, Coddle says that uh, Ron Bass is uh, more methodical and has uh, more power. Um, I w- was having trouble kind of pinning Ron Bass's style. Like, I don't know what sort of wrestler is he. I've seen quite a. I mean, I've, I've, from what I've seen of Ron Bass, he's never struck me as any. As I, he's kind of nondescript, like it, um, yeah. And he didn't really do much in this match. To he did one suplex uh, and a bulldog during this match. Um, but yeah, it's hard to pin a real style on him, on one bass. Yeah, I kind of see him in a lot of the Black Bart mold, uh, pretty punch and kick style, kind of unassuming, not very interesting. Uh, I didn't, I didn't think this match was 
very good, and a lot had to do with Bass's end of not being able to really put a lot of heat on Slater. And then the finish is one that I always absolutely hate, where you know Slater has the pin on Bass, but the referee DQs him because he sort of shoved down the referee and let his temper get the best of him, and that sort of like what we was talking about before. To me, that's more of an instance of a, a really boneheaded, dumb, baby face move yeah. that doesn't make Slater look very intelligent I, at all. I, we, we actually saw that on the All Japan set. I think Steamboat hits the ref at one point. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. it's just why would you do yeah. that? But. Yeah, um, not not a great finish at DQ. Um, the only note I've got here is that J.J. Dillon is absolutely great in this match. Yeah, he was really effective interfering. Um, again, one like we saw in previous matches, Gary Hart would constantly jump on the apron and uh, not be able to do anything effectively. Here, AJ, uh, JJ, JJ picked his spots and uh, worked his m- moves and spots ineffectively and really got heat on himself. He got a lot more heat than Bass did. Yeah, and he did a lot of great kind of like just subtle little things, you know, sneaky little looks. Um, yeah, good stuff from JJ uh, D- Dylan, and uh, maybe he's um, he's someone who's kind of you know stock rising for me as this. Right, year. me too, me too. Um, so the next uh, the next match here, um, face Ollie Anderson, very surprising, um, and Keith Larson versus the Russians. Now, Keith Larson, apparently, was a guy, um, was Don Canodal's brother, and he was a guy who um, had been around quite a lot, different territories, um, solely caused them the Scandinavian connection, but the angle here is heavily pro-US, so this is kind of a patriotic deal versus the Russians here. Yeah, we got the national anthem. Um, which halfway through the show was kind of odd placement. And then we get Neil Diamond's America. <laughs> Starts blaring over the screen. The lasers come back. Oh, uh, the yeah. lasers make a big mouth of the United States of America. And uh, with America and US- USA gets written inside of it with the lasers. Uh, so, so this was about his 80s. As you can get watching this, yeah, and it, it interesting to see Ole Anderson positioned as a kind of patriotic American here. Yeah, he he almost looked as out of place as assassin with uh, <laughs> Tyler dancing around a footloose. Ole looked about as uncomfortable with Neil uh, yelling, "We're coming to America!" <laughs> as he uh, stands there in the corner. Um. So the, the weird thing here is that, despite this heavy kind of you know USA USA angle, Sony keeps on calling them the Scandinavian Connection. Well, Larson and Anderson, uh, the Scandinavian Connection here, a very partisan crowd here as well it should be, cheering on the American team, the Scandinavian Connection of uh, Ole Anderson and Keith Larson. I don't know. Just like, <laughs> It's just a really weird, uh, really weird thing to do to highlight the fact that these guys have a Scandinavian background. Yeah, that um, that, that yeah. was weird. So yeah, uh, Keith Larson, um, someone I, I I looked up a a little bit 
and he um he actually I think hold on a second I, I'll I'll pull up his stuff here. Um, he was also known as Rocky Knodel, and he was Don Knodel's brother. And I think the angle here is that um, the Russians had uh, injured Don Knodel. Um, yeah, yeah, they took him out, and uh, so Keith had to step up. Uh, but it it seems like he had sort of a pretty short career. So I don't know what happened to him after this, but kind of in and out based on the information I'd seen. I wasn't familiar with him at all. He um he seemed pretty over here to me. Yeah, I I, I thought um this match was really well worked for what it was. Uh, and Anderson was a surprising good baby face. Uh, Larson kind of, you know, is somebody that I was expecting honestly the worst uh, of he, while I thought he was probably the worst person in this match, he sort of stayed out of the way. Uh, they sort of knew his limitations and worked around those. So everything he did was fine. And then I thought the Koloffs, especially Nikita, just looked like a beast. Um, he looked really good in this match. Is it? Is this our first look at the Russians? I don't, I don't, we... Yeah, yeah, they were not on the two previous shows, so... And I, I thought they looked good here. I know Ivan, later on, one of the kind of things that was always striking to me when you first started learning the history of wrestling was here was somebody that ended Bruno's reign. And the first thing I remembered about Ivan Koloff was that he always was in mid-card feuds in NWA getting the crap kicked out of him. But uh, here he looked real effective. You know, in the, the start of this match, they work over Ivan's arm for a while. So we get a really long uh, it, so face. Man. Every Russians match I've ever seen has the same structure. So it starts with Ivan Koloff taking a beating. Yeah, basically. just taking a beating. Um, and I mean, I wonder about this structure because obviously it's heel in peril. Um, but it does have the, I guess it has the effect of building up Nikita Koloff as a, a real dominating force. Yeah, I, I, I think in some ways they were sort of booked in a corner. With that pairing uh, here, I mean, this segment went a little long. It wasn't as long. I didn't have as many problems with it as like the Knurdle segment in the Final Conflict cage match. Yeah, but it did go a little long here before but, Nikita came in. But there is a big difference because that that Knurdle, um segment didn't really build Slaughter. If that makes any sense, like it wasn't because Slaughter came in and just got his ass handed to him immediately. Yeah, yeah. Here, uh, here, you did build, and when Nikita came in, the the tide definitely switched pretty immediately. But but it also kind of like because every Russians match I've ever seen, and I've seen, you no, know, probably like twelve of them or something uh, yeah. so far, um, it has got this structure, and I guess it. it I mean, it has to. It does make. Nikita seemed like an absolute beast when he gets in, but it also does make uh, Ivan Kolov seem quite like the weak link in this side as well in this yes. team. Yes. Um, but I mean, I, I guess the real reason is is because uh, they're protecting Nikita. Like, I mean, he he's essentially like a like a Bill Goldberg or someone like that at this point. Yeah, they were really protecting Nikita, and and Ivan, I didn't think look as incompetent as he did at. 
numerous other times here, even though he did get worked on for a while. Uh, the ending where Nikita gave Kernurdle the clothesline outside, I thought that was great. Um, I mean, that, that looked brutal. He really gave him a, a stiff clothesline on the outside. And then Ivan got the chain and hit Larson with it uh, to get the win. And the, the crowd was pissed. I mean, you had trash flying in. Uh, people were upset about that. And they did a, I thought, a good job kind of, you know, preventing even more trash or whatever to come in the ring because Kernurdle then gets in the ring with his crutches and starts firing off on the Russians with his crutches. Uh, so you kind of end with the baby faces triumphant. They lost the match. Yeah. They get to retain a bit, little bit of their heat, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I thought I thought this was again very formulaic, uh, structure-wise, but well done. You know, this 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 was effective for what it was. Um, I mean, I I guess the faces. Uh, we got one pump handle slam from Ollie uh, Ollie Anderson, but other than that, you know, the the face, um, the heat and peril segment. You know, the offense isn't anything particularly interesting. Right. Um, yeah. And then we we do get a very long bear hug from Nikita when he gets in. It's yes. like it's like he comes in, he dominates, but then all he's really got to do is a bear hug. It's like he doesn't have really you know a lot of stuff to do when he's dominating. Um, yeah, he, he's to me he's definitely better sort of running around bulldozing people. Like when he gave Kernel the clothesline, I mean yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. he looked so powerful and explosive given that move. Yeah, and the. Um, the finish was uh, good because uh, like uh, it showed like uh, Ivan Koloff being a sneaky, sneaky kind of older <clears throat> veteran heel uh, with a chain. Um, but I was a little bit confused because the announcers don't call it. They don't, they seem to ignore the finish. It just kind yeah, of yeah. I don't know if they didn't see him uh, get the chain or what. But this was sort of our last example of them not completely being on board with the finish. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I mean, if I was a producer watching the show after last year, I'd be thinking, hmm, for next year, do we get Soli on again? Or yeah. do we think about getting another announcer? Because they, they definitely don't have any chemistry, these two. And no. uh, by this point, it's really obvious. Yeah, d- 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 decent. And um, I, I wonder what happened to Don Kn- uh, Knodel after this. I mean, does he, um, do we see him again? I don't think so. I don't recall seeing him. He may be. Is he in Starcade in 85? It's possible. Yeah, because he, he seemed reasonably over here to me, uh, Don Canodal. Um, as over as, you know, I guess as over as, he, as he'd, he'd ever be. Um, and a babyface by this point, obviously. Uh, apparently in Starcade 85, he's second the Rock and Roll Express versus the Russians again. So. Right, yeah. So this was. His, I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite know what the deal is with that. This, I guess, was his big feud um, for some time here. Like, this was his deal being injured and uh, being against the Russians. <laughs> um, but, of course, his, his career peaked with that cage match, as we, as we know, as we mentioned. He he won't have another match as good as that cage match. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I just looked, and then Starcade '86, him and uh, 
Larson as Rocky Colonel faced Tim Warner and Nelson Royal in the opener. So I cannot wait for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I may have to jump ahead and watch that as soon as we're done here. Uh, um, okay, so so now we have a match that genuinely uh, surprised me in existing at all. Tully Blanchard versus uh, R- Ricky Steamboat. G- given the reps of these two guys, you'd think that this match would be highlighted a little bit more. Um, but honestly, this is the first I'd really seen or heard of it. I, I mean, I think this match has a... a okay reputation i i think most of the time though it's one of those this is sort of the rose among the thorns as far as this card's concerned where this yeah. was the long bright spot and just a pretty subpar overall show um, but you know whereas i think that's really uh for example i think the Bulldogs dream team match from WrestleMania two has really been romanticized because of that exact thing where it's the one good match among a bunch of terrible matches. This one sort of gets downplayed overall. Do do you think that this has a rep as a hidden gem? Do you think that would be fair? Like amongst those in the know, it's got a rep as a kind of hidden. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I would expect this to be on the 80s DVD VR set. I would assume most people that participate in that had seen it before when they watched that, and I would I would expect it to rank pretty highly. Um, But so this, I I also think I did have a look. I think this is the only time these two ever faced each other um, on on TV or anything. Yeah, I can't recall them ever mixing up again. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think they'd ever... This is certainly their most marquee matchup, at the very least. So, the, the obviously, Steamboat has injured ribs going into this from the attack by Black Bart, Ron Bass, and, uh, and Blanchard. Um, and that's really the, the storyline going into this. Steamboat's got injured ribs. Blanchard, his game plan is to take out those ribs. Um, and we have an immediate, immediate fire to start here. Um, it's just a hot start, and then an awesome suplex, and a backbreaker kind of on the ribs. I really like that. He kind of, um, Blanchard gives Steamboat a kind of rib breaker, I guess you'd call it. Um, yeah. Yeah. His his rib work was really good. Yeah, there's, there's just basically just great, uh, great psychology here. Um, and uh, we see like some real great healing from Tully. He's cocky. He starts even prancing about a little bit like, mm-hmm. when he's on top. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, th- this is some some of the best wrestling we've seen so far on these NWA shows between these two, as you'd expect, I think. Yeah, I think uh, Tully brought out a lot of sort of fire in Steamboat. Uh, which I think works best with him when he's sort of able. I know Steamboat at sometimes can do sort of these goofy mocking poses where he sort of intimidates. For that. One that always comes to mind is I love his matches versus Rick Rude, but when he'd always do the rude, you know, pose where he 
wiggles his hips. I always thought that looked sort of goofy and campy. Yeah. Uh, here, you know, he does the slingshot suplex to sort of one-up Blanchard, and I thought that was a really fun moment Yeah. Well, of uh, Steamboat sort of kind of getting one over on Tully. I, I've got written here, I mean, um, Tully gives Steamboat a back suplex, and then I've got written Steamboat's chops and strikes are, are sensational. Tully's bloodied, and we, we we go from those chops and strikes into kind of, we transition into a section where Steamboat's on top. He gives Blanchard a neck breaker, a slingshot mm-hmm. suplex, an amazing drop kick, and then hits a splash from the top. Um, that sequence, that is some of the best kind of uh, sequence of offensive moves from anyone that we've seen so far. And that slingshot suplex kind of uh, was surprising that he had the cheek of hitting uh, Tully's finisher on him just in the middle of that. I, I was really impressed. Uh, yeah, this match really told a great story. Um, I mean, 12 minutes, so not very long, but had a you know good heated beginning. Tully takes advantage, works over the ribs in great fashion, and then, like you just described, a really, really hot uh, ending sequence. Yeah, so, so then uh, there's a little bit of skullduggery there because uh, Tully's got the brass knucks um, yeah. from, from JJ and we get a little bit of a screwy finish. Um, and I've got written, this is a good to great match, but it's probably too short to be anything more than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if we want to throw out star ratings, I, I wouldn't have a problem going four stars with this, though, I think. Yeah, I mean, easy, me, yeah. I, I, I thought it was pretty great. Told, told a good story in the time. Uh, again, Steamboat, we saw some things from him that weren't very customary from him at this time or throughout his career. A little more fire, a little more intensity. Uh, and then Tully was just, a, he's just a great dick heel. I mean, that strut that he did that you were talking about, that was just a great sort of <laughs> strut around pompous move and yet this is the first time i think we've we've seen two really great i guess you could say flair and race as well but where, where you get two really good workers in the in the ring together and it just like almost immediately as this match starts you i just thought yes this is going to be good um, yeah maybe, maybe steamboat and slaughter in the uh, oh, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. cage match but I, I would say totally was a better opponent for steamboat yeah. Um. Then Slaughter. I mean, Slaughter was great at bumping in that match, but as far as like an overhaul s- story and uh, what Tully brought, I thought he was better overall for Steamboat. I I did actually think that had this gone twenty minutes rather than twelve, it could have been a five star probably. Like it would be. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I mean, this this with a little more time, a little more work on the ribs, if they'd have been allowed it. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I didn't have a problem with the finish. It's, cor- it's sort of part of the course. I mean, it, is it screwy? Yes, but it kind of fit with the theme of the match and still got over that Tully was a coward. So Steamboat was right all along, but Tully ended up the victor. Yeah. Um, so d- last uh, last time out, you, you mentioned that you think that you know, you suspect the steamboat might be a little bit overrated. That you don't think, even think he's in the in the conversation, um, as it were. And I I think that after this 
uh, after this showing here, he's basically off to WF now, so we're not going to see him for a few years uh, from this point. Like, he, he's not going to be back until 89, I don't think. Right. Yeah, um, I so, think his next show will be uh, the Chi-Town Rumble, actually. So, um, you know, literally the next time we see him is going to be the trilogy, um, <clears> pretty much. So, at this juncture, so we've just seen him in the cage match with uh, Slaughter, and now we have this match. Has your opinion changed of, of of him at all, or do you still do you still think that he's not really? I mean, I'd, I'd always I'd seen this match before, and I knew I I really really liked it. I mean, I would put this probably in Steamboat's top ten matches of, of, that he's had. It's probably in my top ten for him. Uh, I, I think it's a great match. I, I, I mean, I don't think he's had a bad performance per se, but he did do some stuff in the cage match that I found slightly annoying. And uh, I didn't think the Starcade 83 tag match, while good, was anything special. Um, and what I've always said about Steamboat, I mean, last time out is, just from my frame of reference in, you know, 2000, 2001, getting on the Internet, if I, at that time, cold, would have gotten on the Internet and typed in, you know, a search, who's the greatest wrestler of all time, with my knowledge then, I would have expected, you know, Steamboat, Flair, these types of names to come up. Yeah. And... And even now, I think there's still some of that resonating, but is lessening. But just with everything I've seen, uh, I don't think he's a real contender. Great worker, absolutely. But I think he's had some performances that were, you know, terrible as far as what we saw in the All Japan set. I thought, you know, that match with Jimmy Snuka was absolutely awful. And, uh, and there's just a lot of things that there's, there's a couple of little things that he does that sort of annoys me and aggravates me. But in this match, he was excellent. Had no problem with him in this match. I, I mean, I, I guess Steamboat's reputation comes from two places, I think. I mean, I think his high end matches are very well publicized. Savage and Flair, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. And the other thing is that. <clears throat> If you listen to uh, shoot interviews or li- listen to old time, uh, you know any wrestlers of this era, when when you talk when they talk about who they think is the best wrestler, ever, you know, they always bring up Steamboat as a guy who always gave a hundred percent, absolutely the right attitude. Like his his backstage rep couldn't be any higher, basically. Um, and I, I think it comes from those two places. So like any anyone in kind of in the business kind of thinks it for themselves, um, that Steamboat is kind of like the benchmark for work rate or effort or attitude, etc. So, yeah, the, you know, it, it, comes from, it comes from that as much as anything else. Um, so, wh- where were we here? Um, oh, yes. US we're up t- to the classic encounter. US, US title. Biddy Graham versus Wahoo McDaniel. And we get... Uh, Kung Fu fighting over the tannoy, <laughs> and this this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. So, so Kung Fu fighting plays. Billy Graham is in like 
kung fu, like he's working some weird kung fu gimmick here, and he throws some of the fakest looking kung fu moves you'll ever see. I mean, oh, and he he looked awful in his his face. I mean, he he looked like he'd gotten a day pass out of the nursing home and wound up at the arena. Um, I. I, I read up a little bit about this Kung Fu gimmick, and apparently this was Billy Graham's idea, and he kept on pushing with it. Like, it wasn't getting over. He looked he, he looked ridiculous. You know, clearly he was making kind of like a joke of himself, yet he still persisted with it. Um, clearly, Graham, not, uh, not a good booking mind uh, to, to stick with that gimmick. Um, and this was sad to see, really. Yeah, um, this was really sad. Wahoo McDaniel oh. looks very grizzled, and I've uh, got written here. He's got like a real red whiskey nose, like you know, <laughs> you know, those kind of like, uh, like when the nose is kind of turned a little bit. Um, and he's got a very charismatic-looking face. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's looking very grizzled here in '84. I I don't know what he's going to be looking like in these '87, '88 matches on the AWA style. <laughs> right. Um. This was crap. Yeah. I, this this was really bad. Very short for Sammy Main. Just atrocious. Uh, it's a squash uh, match. I mean, there's nothing else yeah, to it. I mean, I mean, and and the finish at four minutes is so abrupt because uh, Graham gets a full Nelson on Wahoo. Wahoo overtakes that, gives him a double tomahawk chop, which. In the Wahoo Chop department, this one was very lightly thrown, and then pins him. And like I said, in just over four minutes, was, and this was just a train wreck. Was this face versus face, or was Wahoo actually here? Well, ne- yeah, I mean they were talking about on the announcers, which I didn't recall and was sort of surprised about. Uh, Wahoo, I guess, was sort of turning heel at this time because. I know Gordon kept alluding that not everybody agreed with his actions, so I don't quite know what the backstory was there, but I was surprised by that. Uh, this is an obvious low point in uh, Billy Graham's career. <laughs> yeah, this this was really sad. It's, it's weird to see someone um, someone who had kind of like quite a big reputation and uh, someone who was obviously pretty high on, you know, a main eventer, um, jobbed out in this fashion. Um, yeah, and in some ways they should have known better. I mean, I don't know why they decided. I know Billy Graham was a big name, but there's no way this should have been the semi-main event or the you know the next to last match on a card on this card. I'm guessing. It was, I mean, they should have just known better. I'm thinking that it was as short as it was because Graham couldn't work at this point. Yeah, I mean, this this was like the Divas match. Before the main event in modern WWE times, I mean, four minutes. Graham was moving very slowly. Uh, like I said, his face looked really old, and uh, this this was terrible. What was the deal with Graham? Did he have some sort of like uh, problem? Some. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think it was essentially his health just failed on him uh, very rapidly. I mean, by as we see, I mean, this is the end of 84, so three years later when he was helping out Don Morocco, he already had the cane and the pretty uh, substantial limp. So yeah, he, he just really declined rapidly. 
of all the gimmicks he could have picked, I don't understand the Kung Fu thing. Because he seems to know absolutely nothing about Kung, Kung Fu. I, Stupid gimmick. I could do a better impression of Kung Fu than that. Anyway, we're, we're going into the main event now. And I think it's face versus face. I, I, don't, I don't think Flair is a heel here at all, listening by the crowd reaction. I thought Flair got the bigger pop. He, d- he definitely got a decent pop here. Yeah. Um, it's not obvious who the... Like, this is face versus face. And we have a special guest ref, Smoking Joe Fraser. Yeah. Uh, pretty awful promo before that as well, involving uh, Joe Fraser and... Um, well, yeah, you had the judges. That was... A sight to behold in its own. Now, who were those guys? Did he? Did do you know? <laughs> I, I still don't know who the Japanese superstar was. They announced his name twice, but I couldn't make it out. I was hoping you could write that down <laughs> or you would catch it because I mean I, I didn't know who it was. Uh, but then, but at least supposedly he was a wrestling superstar so you know i'm fine with him being a judge but then you have joe frazier who's a you know obviously a famous boxer so while he's qualified to be a wrestler judge i mean i don't know especially considering he's refereeing the match but boxing wrestling i can sort of believe they're close enough that i'll give it a pass but then you have uh, Kyle Petty, who is the son of Richard Petty, uh, you know, him and Dale Earnhardt are the two most famous NASCAR stock car racer drivers of all time right. in the States. Uh, so Kyle Petty is Richard Petty's son, and how he would have any qualification to judge a wrestling match, I have no idea. I don't know why they brought him in as a celebrity i mean uh, i mean i guess he did get a nice ovation from the crowd which i mean if you follow kyle petty's career he was i mean he was pretty disappointing he wasn't obviously wasn't able to fill his father's shoes in uh in stock car racing but I, i just thought that was so weird that he was deemed you know qualified to uh, judge on this match. I, I, no, I'm actually thinking that in terms of demographics and whatnot, there'd probably be quite a big crossover between stock car racing fans and wrestling fans. Probably the same kind of like, you know, it's the same blue collar worker type fans who would be attracted. To yeah, I would say there's crossover, but I mean, I don't think anybody would say I've got to watch this show because Kyle Petty's judging the main event and basically all we get of him is this promo which was terrible and then he comes out and waves to the crowd Did, you know I can't find anything on this Japanese star uh, I got, I've got a feeling it was just Mr. Ito again because <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like, it doesn't seem to be that anybody who's ever done a review of the show uh, can find the name of this uh, Japanese star, so um, yeah. Or maybe maybe they got uh, would would Hiro uh, Matsuda have been around at this point? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I I didn't. I couldn't catch it. I wanted to know who this was, but uh, yeah, never I, could make out. I, I suspect. And then they they had a production mistake when Gordon thought they were throwing to something and they didn't have it lined up or whatever and. I love Gordon sort of laughing it off. 
Yeah. Pretty, pretty awkward scenes. Yeah. The, so uh, this, this was a train wreck before it started. Do you know, I, I don't know if we see uh, Soli again, but for me, he's a very awkward screen presence in general. Like, I just... Like, for someone who was on TV for so long, um, it seems weird that he seemed so uncomfortable whenever he was on camera. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you hear stories about him being inebriated. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't know about that, but maybe a possibility. Okay, I do have some information on the famous Duke Kiyomuka. <laughs> Who is this? Was guy? our judge? Uh, according to Online World of Wrestling, made his debut in 1947. Uh, finishing move, as predicted, the Karate Chop. <laughs> and it it looks like he was very, very uh, 50s, 60s was his prime. A lot of Texas. Uh, I mean, even he run a, won a lot of championships in Texas. Uh, facing Fritz and whatnot, but that, you know, his last title win was in 1966. So yeah. we're talking about almost 20 years removed from that time when he judged this. So probably not a lot of nostalgia carrying over. He's so he was a big star in the well. He was a star, a Japanese star who got over yeah. in the U.S. basically. Yeah, he looks. It looks like he was sort of the big uh, kind of foreign uh, star. I would assume heel in the Texas territory during the fifties and sixties, probably coming off World War Two. Right. Um, so yeah, weird, weird that they choose uh, these three judges in particular. I mean, like, what, what do you think the creative meeting was there? We're going to get in this guy Petty. We're going to get in. Uh, Smoking Joe Fraser to ref, and uh, I know we'll get in this uh, this Japanese dude who held some Texas titles in the sixties. It's like of all the wrestlers, like could you know they could have asked uh, what was Sandy Scott doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I don't know. I, I would assume that Muhammad Ali was not announced for WrestleMania one by this time. Uh, but having Smoking Joe, I mean, he's a, he's a great boxer. Yeah, um, big star. I mean, he he was he was one of the legendary boxers, but that is such a a trump card by Vince to get Muhammad Ali yeah. when they just got Smoking Joe. Uh, absolutely, it's, it's it's just going one better, isn't it? Or even several levels better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just total one upsmanship because you know everybody would consider Smoking Joe great, but you know Muhammad Ali is. Legendary, transcendent, whatever adjective you want to throw his way. And I was uh, very interested in the weights at the introduction of the match. Dusty Rhodes, much the heavier of the two wrestlers. Well, Dusty is carrying a little, uh, a little weight on this match. And uh, I was talking to him. He said he's picked up uh, some strength from it. He uh, has been uh, working out with the heavy weights of late. So he's like, <laughs> this really amused me. <laughs> he said, <laughs> Dusty's carrying a little extra weight in this match. <laughs> um, but he says it's been he's given him some extra strength. He's been working on the weights too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. And then he says, of course, Dusty was uh was you know 
he had offers for to go into pro baseball, into pro football, um, but he he didn't like the team nature of those sports and he preferred the individualism of wrestling, the last of the rugged individualist sports, which <laughs> <laughs> which was both poetic and really funny to me. Um, you know, Dusty's an all-around athlete. Uh, he was a shortstop in baseball, played uh, offensive line in football, had uh, offers in both uh, pro baseball, pro football, and in pro wrestling, and uh, tried uh, pro football, said he just didn't like the... Uh, uh, the team type discipline. He's a man of individual discipline, and it has brought him, uh, of course, in this sport, which is the last of the rugged individual sports in the world, in my opinion. Is that true? Like, would, was Dusty a kind of athlete? Uh, yeah, Dusty was actually a, a very good baseball player. Um, Did he go to I West mean, Texas uh, University like every other wrestler in the world? I don't. I don't think he did go to West Texas. Because um, there was that big class, wasn't there? With uh, yeah, you had you had Funk and Tolly. I mean, I think Tolly pretty much was sort of the star of all them. I mean, he was the quarterback. DiBiase, I think, was in that class. Tito Santana, something tells me, was in that. Yes, yes, yes. Tito went there. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of them, but I mean, Dusty, Dusty is from Texas, so. Um, but I, I, then again, um, going to going to college doesn't really fit in with his um, blue comma collar kind of image. So maybe he didn't. I don't know. All right. He had offers, says Soli. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So Dusty actually goes for the figure four really early here. And Flair injures his leg very quickly in this match. Uh, and I've just got written, this is typical Flair versus Dusty stuff. Um, there's not a lot else to say. Yeah, I mean, this was a very condensed version of their match. I don't know if the show was running long or this is what they plan to do all the time. But, yeah, I mean, he, he did slap on this figure four about four minutes into the match. Yeah. So... You, you get no sense of the story they're trying to tell. I mean, this has almost worked as a sprint, but uh, I, it, it just seemed abrupt to me. It didn't work at all, the way they sort of worked this match. And then then we get, I mean, for me, this this is putting, uh, obviously it's not his fault. It was probably booked this way. But for me, this is putting uh, Joe Fraser over the top of worst ref ever to me. Um, <laughs> the finish here, um, Dusty gets some color, and um, he starts bleeding, just like every other time we've ever seen Dusty Rhodes wrestle, just like earlier on where we saw Manny Fernandez with blood on him, <laughs> just like any other match where we see blood, um, and the match is stopped. I don't like. And then Soli says, "Well, I can't fault. I can't fault." Fraser yeah, here. that. I mean, that's. <laughs> I guess you could, in some ways, justify that in boxing, they're not as privy to blood as much as in wrestling. Um, and and when Dusty cut himself, I thought he. I, it actually was more bloody than I remembered. Um, I know the Great American Bash, uh, Flair Luger finish. Um, when we go back and revisit that, I mean, I remember that being just essentially a trickle where I've probably bled more from 
paper clips, <laughs> you know, I mean, paper cuts than what Flair, I mean, what Luger had bleeding. Uh, this I didn't think was very much blood at all either, but uh, Dusty, I thought, did a pretty good job of at least getting it angled to where it was kind of running into his eye. But, I mean, this is just such a cheap cop-out finish. This is a terrible on, finish. On the biggest show of the year, you just, it's pretty much unforgivable to have a finish like this. Of all the finishes, this is this is among the worst finishes of, like, it's a terrible finish. Yeah, I mean, I know the Dusty finish is kind of a famous, obviously it's a famous finish next in the next year. Uh, but th- this one was really, really bad. And and Smoking Joe didn't exactly do a, a fabulous job up to that point. Um, he was in the way a good bit. But and solely saying can't fault him. I don't. <laughs> yeah, that, that that sort of gets into the same thing as solely talking about how awesome a job Kanitsky was doing in the cage match where. Uh, like I said in that show, I just I really like a kind of a announcer to sort of be saying what the viewer at home's thinking, and solely just sort of sticks to the straight line script and the story they're trying to tell, and refuses to veer from it. So you never get any, you know, this is bowling shoe ugly kind of you know cryptic comments from him. Um, yeah. Not one good finish on this entire card. Like yeah, no, yeah, nothing I would say is exceptional. Uh, again, I don't have a problem with the steamboat totally finish or the uh, the tag match finish because those weren't main event positions, and I mean it's the '80s, so you're gonna have a good many crap finishes. Uh, the ma- the main event really puts this show over. The, I mean, it it certainly wasn't good. Up until the main event, there were some decent uh, matches. But the the main event really makes this one into just a very forgettable show. Re- pretty tough to get through. It's, very, it's a three-hour show, and it, it was tough for me to get through it. Three sittings for me. Three separate yeah, sittings. Yeah, um, it, it, it took me multiple sittings, whereas Starcade 83, I did it in pretty much one sitting. Final Conflict was an hour and a half, so I did that in one sitting yeah. also. Very, very but, underwhelming show. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Stargate '83 was not, you know, the show of all time, but it had, you know, I thought a great match in Piper Valentine, a good, good match in the Young Blood Steamboat versus Briscoes, and then at least, at the very least, a great finish with Flair winning the belt yeah. in the cage. Uh, this had. You know, one good to great match, a couple of decent matches, but then just a terrible taste is left in your mouth from the main event and a bunch of other meaningless stuff. That I mean, this felt like a show building to another show, not the biggest show of the year. So is this Dusty booking still? I don't know who was booking in 1984. If this was... I just... I mean, if Dusty was booking this, he really made himself seem... Terrible in yeah. this match. Really, really strange. Um, and uh, I'm just like I, I said before that Pat Patterson has a rep as a great finish guy. Um, if if this is Dusty, like he is the worst finish guy of all time. Because uh, like I said, not not a single match has a good finish at the end of it. You know, 
um, like some of the finishes are passable, but there's not one kind of like. Is there a clean finish in this in this entire card? Uh, well, Adidas on Mr. Ito. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you, you know, certainly not a memorable finish, but yeah, the Denny Brown, Mike Davis, I mean, that was sort of clean, but confusing. Uh, the, uh, the Edo Adidas match was clean, but not much there. And then everything else was kind of screwy in one way or the other. So we do get a couple of promos at the end. Um, Flair's promo is not at all heelish. He just said, I'll take that decision, fine. I'll get to keep the belt. <laughs> um, but he, like, he's not a dick about it at all. Yeah, it was pretty gentlemanly. And then Dusty Rhodes calls out Joe Frazier and he wants him. Like, which is really, like, that That can't turn into anything. So I don't understand that. I don't understand this at all. Like, uh, maybe Joe was looking for payday. I don't know. Yeah, this was, uh, I mean, the way he was talking, it was revving up for a match. But it obviously didn't lead to one. So I don't know what the objective was. Yeah, very, very strange booking all around. Uh, and I don't know. Um, Flair doesn't really make a big deal about winning a million dollars either. Right, which, I mean, and, and one thing I want to say is, like, I do think the million dollars sort of diluted the importance of the championship. I mean, I know a million dollars is a lot of money, but, I mean, they were sort of mentioning that first in this match. They were like, this match is for a million dollars, and also for the NWA champion. You know, I mean, it's kind of an afterthought for the yeah. title. It, all in all... Um, I think this is one of the worst book shows I've seen in a while. Yeah, this this was bad, uh, really bad. It kind of it's kind of interesting to see uh, the WWF sort of follow through too with WrestleMania, WrestleMania two, where WrestleMania is not a great show but serviceable and has some good finishes and whatnot. And WrestleMania two is a pretty bad show, but at least in that match, uh, in that show, it does have a, a you know a good feel good finish with Hogan beating Bundy. This had a terrible finish uh, that again really left a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah. Um Yeah, and the, the commentators uh basically throughout the show basically, you know, agree that this is uh however good Starkid eighty three was, this was a night to that surpasses it. <laughs> yeah, that 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 seemed really empty, especially at the end when you just watch this terrible finish, and then the the first thing that's the first thing when they go back to Cottle and Gordon is them him and Hall and how they so much surpass yeah. Starcade '83, which is just. But I think I mean again as a first time viewer, I'd be thinking to myself, well, if that's you know the pinnacle show that you can put out. Maybe this is not for me. Um, but I, I think their message is belied by the looks on their faces. Which, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, they they definitely didn't look like they were trying to sell it too big. But I mean, to me, that's just something where you just scrap that and just go with, you know, well, Dusty's wanting to seek revenge on Fraser. You know, just find something else to say instead of that, which is obviously a bunch of BS. Um, yeah. So it, it's interesting that like. Like you see the same pattern, and it it, it it happens quite a lot where you get a reasonably hot uh, 
thing first time around. The second time around, you lose some momentum there, and it's just not as good. And then the third, the third year, or the third show, or the third thing, um, somehow uh, manages to surpass the the others. And uh, definitely, that's the case with WrestleMania. You know, WrestleMania one was was decent, good start. WrestleMania two was awful. WrestleMania three was a you know classic night. Uh, right. And I think we see the same pattern with Starcade here. Just preempting, you know, 85 is generally considered a, a good night, I think. Um, uh, yeah, and did you, you actually see that pattern um, in all sorts of strange places, like, uh, you know, Mar- Super Mario Brothers. Uh, Super Mario Brothers 1, good game. Mario Brothers 2, not so much. Mario Brothers 3, smash hit. Uh, you, you, it's, a, it's a strange how that pattern works, but uh, definitely it's the case here. And I wonder if the, the lost momentum with with this show, with with Starcade '84, um, may have given uh, Vince a bit of, you know, because he must have been planning uh, WrestleMania at this point. Yeah, I think this. He was sort of when he viewed this, he was kind of licking his chops because this was a pretty subpar effort all around. And the the business with uh, what do they call it, Black Saturday, that that had happened by this point. Yes. Um, so yeah, Crockett had bought the Georgia TV back from Vince. Um, so they had that. They had their t- kind of TV in place. But as I understand it, the million, uh, the million dollars that Vince got for that purchase basically funded WrestleMania. So there we go. The rest is history. Um, shall we do our end of uh, end of show awards here? Yes. Go ahead. So we got MVP. Uh, Got to be Tully, hasn't it? Yeah, I would say Tully or again Steamboat. I mean, I got no problems calling Steamboat great in that match. I thought his promo before it was pretty good. Uh, Tully or Steamboat, both of them were uh, great. Honorable mention for JJ Dillon as well. Yeah, JJ really showed me a lot here, uh, and then. Also, I'd like to mention Boogie Woogie Man, because again, I mean, he was very over, uh, did what he was asked to do in an effective manner, so. I'd like to mention one of the Zambuis, I thought, no, (laughs) that's a joke. (laughs) Um, Match of the Night is obvious as well, it's it's obviously Tully versus versus Steamboat. Uh, Oh, I I may have to go with Adidas Mr. Ito. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I... do we do worst match? No, we just do worst uh, you know, non-MVP or worst. Yeah, the least valuable player. Uh, man. Oh, I mean, whoever booked the show probably has Booker. to be in the running. Smoke, Smoke and Joe did not look good. Uh, I, I th- think there's only one contender for me, and it's obviously Billy Graham. Oh yeah, Billy. That that's that's the perfect part. Yeah, that was just. I mean, that was sad. I, I mean, that sort of shows. I've done forgot. I've tried to blot that from my memory. Just that was that was a sad match. Um, he goes back around. to WF then, right? Billy Graham. Yeah, I mean, he would still sort of hang around, and I mean, it it was just he was he was done by this point, so. It, it, for me, I mean, having watched a lot of the Horseman stuff, stuff from '85, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm getting towards where I'm pretty familiar with the 
material from like 85 onwards. Um, it's hard to see how the product goes from this to what we see there in a short space right. of time. I don't know what right. happens, but like the, the roster clearly changes quite a lot, and the quality of the matches goes up clearly. Um, but I'm I'm getting see. I wonder if it's a case of the way things are remembered as well, though, because. I'm pretty sure, even on Starcade 85, for example, there'll be quite a lot of uh, there'll be quite a lot of these kind of, I guess, glorified squash matches or you know your average superstars match still on a supercard. I, I still think that carries on, um, but maybe we see less of it as time and as time goes. Yeah, I've looked over the card and it doesn't look as egregious as what we got here, but I mean, yeah, Starcade 85 is uh, 12 matches, including a singles match with Billy Graham versus the Barbarian, so. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait I for can, that. I can only imagine. <laughs> oh, amazing. All right, well, we, we have that to look forward to. Um, yeah. th- th- thanks a lot. It's, uh, it's now 8, 8 a.m. here. And I'm thinking of uh, starting my day. I don't think I'm going to go back to bed now. Yep, I'm I'm heading back to bed as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, well. Thanks a lot, Chad. Um, yeah, Starcade '84 was uh, difficult to sit through. Um, and if anybody's still with us after two hours here, um, I guess this show may have been too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. See ya. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.